0: Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. I have been wanting to interview Whitney Tome since the inception of the podcast because she's one of the leaders of Green 2.0. An initiative that led to a groundbreaking report that inspired this podcast. Whitney is currently the executive director of Green 2.0, a groundbreaking environmental diversity initiative to increase the racial diversity of the largest national environmental NGOs, foundations and federal government agencies. Whitney has such an interesting background. She's a former professional ballerina as well as an experienced advocate and facilitator. And we talk quite a bit about how her professional background has evolved and is evolving. We also had a fun chat about some similarities and differences between ballet and environmentalism. So stick for that one. Our conversation primarily focused on why, despite increasing racial diversity in the United States, the racial composition in environmental organizations and agencies has not broken the 12 to 16% green ceiling that has been in place for decades. When I first read the report two years ago, it put a lot of my experiences in the environmental profession into perspective and really many of my experiences in in the non-environmental profession. And it's what helped validate my experiences to start this podcast. That's for queer, trans, black, indigenous people of color, people with disabilities and our accomplices. In addition to talking about the current state of the lack of diversity in the environmental movement, we discuss some of the improvements that are being made, particularly within the top 40 environmental organizations. We also talk about specific steps environmental organizations can take to increase diversity, equity and inclusion within their own organizations. I absolutely loved this conversation because it allowed me to gain a better understanding of the current situation of diversity in the big green organizations and what needs to be changed. This was a really fun conversation and a lighthearted conversation as well, despite the seriousness of the topic. And that's because of Whitney's energy is just very easy to talk to and It's a very forthcoming and it really comes through in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. I'd like for us to start off the beginning as much as possible. (laughs) So you are a former professional ballerina and you're also an experienced advocate and facilitator. And so as I was reading your bio, that really stuck out to me. And I was like, this is so cool. (laughs) I wonder how she got into the environmental space. And where did your passion for the natural environment come from?
1: I think my passion probably started really at a young age because my mother, who's an elementary school teacher, retired now but used to take her third graders for an overnight, usually outside for just one night, see the stars, often do some like astronomy work as well, but just stay outside. And I still have an incredibly vivid memory of, I think the first time I went with her and that crew is it actually ended up in a torrential downpour to the point at which it actually washed out our (gasps) campfire. And we ended up sleeping in the bus. Um, (laughs) that's fun (laughs) but I think that was the first thing for me of like really spending a lot of time in the outdoors and being there for like an overnight and that I think started me on this path but I think going to college in Vermont was actually the one that really like solidified this work for me because I still remember like the joy of closing up my car from New Jersey driving to Vermont and opening it and just the air is like We used to say it's so fresh, it either slaps you or you will slap it back, you know? (laughs) But that, just the feeling how Vermont is, how green it is all of the time, was just one of those moments for me that was like, huh, why isn't everything like this? And then it became like the, oh, maybe I should do something about this. (laughs) If this is what life should be like. Yeah. So that was my start.
0: And then you went to law school, Mm -hmm. correct? How was law school? And do you feel that you found your purpose in environmental
1: law? I'd say I don't have just one purpose and it's always evolving. So between college and law school, I was the professional dancer. So for me, that was purpose, right? And it gave me an incredible sense of like what I wanted to do, but I knew it wasn't permanent for me. And law school gave me the ability to... Both learn a ton, be exhausted in a way that feels different than having children (laughs) and living under COVID right now, which is also a different level of exhausting. (laughs) Yes. But I think it was a realization of the power of the law, the power of policy. Mm-hmm. To truly change both what people experience and what they see, and how their lives are either benefited or often burdened by the things that we put in place. And so for me, that was the first inkling around okay, let's actually turn this into a career. And while I'm not a practicing lawyer at all, knowing and understanding how law and policy works is just important because it is the backbone of so many of the things that we're actually trying to upend.
0: And so can you give us any specific examples of how you've been able to use your understanding of
1: the law and policies to bring about a desirable change? Yeah, so this was even before I started working on uh, diversity, equity, inclusion and justice. But the work I did on oceans, especially, and understanding the politics of fish and the fishing industry is something I deeply appreciate and will forever appreciate Yeah. Because it's just a different way of thinking and navigating the world that I feel like if you don't work in politics, you don't get to experience. But it tells you a lot about how decisions actually get made. That is both eye-opening at times, sometimes frightening, sometimes joy-filled. It's all of the things. But the work I did, especially on a lot of campaigns and advocating for fisheries policy, really taught me so much about both what is possible, but also like who's at the table and who's included.
0: There's the whole issue around fisheries and overfishing our oceans is something that really saddens me. And I try not to eat too much seafood. But what was something that you observed that either (laughs) surprised you or took you aback about how the whole fishery system works
1: that you can share? (laughs) I think what's fascinating about especially fisheries politics in the U.S., is it's often not quite seen as an environmental issue. It's often seen as a constituency issue, especially for government mm. officials and elected officials. And that dichotomy between both like the true livelihoods right, that fishermen have and love and deeply care about and the environmental consequences, which I think people think of as dichotomous, are actually not. Mm -hmm. But they're often treated in the system as different things. And so I think when I think about looking back on fisheries management now, it's like, how do you better actually align both of those things, which is livelihoods and the environment, rather than pitting them against each other? And there are ways to do it. And there are definitely organizations that are doing a better job of that than most. But that realignment, I think, is really important.
0: Yeah. For the longest time, I carried this little card of what are sustainable fish from the Monterey mm-hmm. Bay Aquarium. Now it's an app. Yeah, now it's an app. <laughs> <laughs> I go to the grocery store and I'm like, hmm, let's see, is the salmon sustainable? But yes, you're right. There are options out there compared to at least when I was growing up. It was go to the fish market and every fish under the ocean was available. And it was consumed quite heavily and still so is, but to now have these access to information where people can consume responsibly, I think is helpful. I don't know how much it's really changed or increased the sustainability of like the fisheries industry, but I think it comes down to the consumer and their awareness and what they demand. So it's
1: a step in a good direction. Yeah. And it's been really fascinating watch community supported fisheries, so like community supported agriculture popping up and really getting that direct to consumer relationship so that people realize like where their fish is actually coming from and who's actually fishing it is also I think a way of changing the perception around fishing and around the livelihoods that fishermen have. Yeah. It's like a farm to table, but maybe like ocean to table. Fish to table. <laughs> fish table. Okay. That's right.
0: One of the reasons I reached out to you is because you're part of an amazing initiative called Green 2.0, and it is a groundbreaking initiative to promote environmental diversity in the environmental profession. And one of the things that are discussed in the report are the lack of representation of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in green groups is the way it's referred in the report. And there's a mention of breaking the green ceiling, which is what inspired this podcast. So I was like, you were on the top list of people that I wanted to interview once I gathered the courage to do so. <laughs> and here I am. So I wanted to ask you, you've evolved from investing your career, your growth in various environmental issues, and now you're focusing more on diversity and inclusion. And so I wanted to ask you, what does diversity and
1: inclusion mean to you? I'll answer that question. I'm going to add two words, which is equity and justice. Because diversity for me is just the things that make anyone different from anyone else. And it can be myriad of things from gender, race, gender identity, sexual orientation, political affiliation, you know, like all the things, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's just diversity. But inclusion is really the sense of where you feel valued and respected and you have a sense of sort of belonging. Right. That's in an environment, right? And when I mean environment, I mean like a, a workplace or a group or a community. When it gets to equity, though, for me, that's really where that transformation begins, which is how are you actually, both as an institution, often and in larger society, Mm -hmm. actually trying to shift barriers, both identify them, but then eliminate the barriers that have prevented the full participation of some groups of people. And then also, how are you actually actively seeking To ensure there's access, opportunity, advancement for people that have historically been either marginalized or underrepresented. Right. And so for me, that's equity. Like it's the beginning of actual systemic change that is required both at the organizational level, the industry level, and then society. But justice is both the more audacious, but it's the one we're actually all should be seeking, right? Which is how do you have a society in which all of the resources are actually allocated equitably, not just equally, but equitably, given the barriers and systems that have been put in place and are still in place that continue to oppress people and especially women and people of color. Yeah. Jedi,
0: justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I'll say while acronyms are really useful, I'm going to be really explicit about the fact that we actually need to use each of those words in the context to which they sit and use them Mm -hmm. correctly. Because I think what often happens is we smush those together, but don't actually call them out individually, which is actually really important because they're different things.
0: Yeah, and I think it just... I don't know if this is the right word, but it just waters down the value Mm -hmm. of the word because like, yeah, that's Jedi. But when you do really spell it out, you really think about what do those words
1: mean in the context of the conversation. And sometimes you only need one of them, right? Mm -hmm. That when when you're talking versus you need all of them and those are different.
0: So how is Green 2.0 trying to increase awareness around these issues of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the environmental or in environmental organizations? So we do it through a couple
1: of ways. One is putting it on the map with that first report that we had the privilege of having Dr. Dorcita Taylor from the University of Michigan Commission.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it was really the first time documenting how many people of color are we actually talking about? (laughs) I could tell you who my friends were like on one hand, but I didn't know how many. And so in part, it was finally saying like, how many are we actually talking about rather than talking in generalities? And then two was really getting to the more granular aspect of this by saying, well, what are their actual experiences, right? It's one thing to say how many, but the next one is to say like, what does it actually mean to be a person of color in this field and how does it actually affect them on a more emotional level. And so with that first report, it was really saying, all right, what are we talking about and what are the systems that we see? And then subsequent to that, we Green 2.0 works in partnership with GuideStar by Candid to create a system by which any organization who has a profile on GuideStar or wants to start one Mm -hmm. can share and upload their demographic data. Okay. And so every year, we ask, especially the top 40 NGOs and foundations, to submit their data to GuideStar. We actually just had our deadline at the beginning of this month to then annually, we, Green 2.0, annually report out what those data show us so that we now have three years of data from the top 40 NGOs and foundations and are about to do year four to see like, are we seeing a path? Are we seeing a trend? Are we seeing any kind of positive trajectory? And now at year three, which we released in February of 2020, we finally are starting to see a positive trend, which is good around especially full-time staff and Mm -hmm. board members. We're starting to see an upward trajectory when it comes to people of color. Senior staff is still not at the same rate of speed, Mm -hmm. but we know that also this data is also lagging in indicator. And so the other things re 2.0 has done since its inception, we've done reports on several key issues. So that includes executive searches, Mm -hmm. which is the place where people of color will or will not be put into the pool of potential candidates, even for that vice president of programs or that president or that CEO. And we did a whole report on that, which really exposed the lack of commitment to diversity in those searches, but also helped identify some search firms who are actually doing this quite well. And so that was one piece. The second one, we did a report on inclusive cultures. So really focused on how does an organization what are the benchmarks, essentially? What are the things you should be doing to ensure that you have an inclusive organizational culture? Yeah. And then lastly, we did one in the middle of last year focused on retention because that is the place like, even if you do an incredible job of bringing people into the organization, do they stay? Exactly. And what are the things that you need to put in place for folks to stay? Right. And so we had a wonderful professor, Dr. Stephanie Johnson, who helped do that report for us to really both qualitatively and quantitatively identify what are some of the barriers, but also what are some of the best practices people need to put in place and organizations put in place Mm -hmm. to ensure that they actually retain staff and people of color.
0: And so what are the recommendations for creating inclusive
1: environments so that you retain the diversity? So there's several, and all of this, I'll say, is on our website at diversegreen.org. But the Leaking Talent Report really identified a couple of key things. And there's also a full infographic that really articulates some of the best practices. So they include things such as unconscious bias training, Mm -hmm. increase in pay transparency, improved promotion practices. So also being transparent when you do have promotion opportunities, what are they?
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: are the requirements for them? What does that actually look like? Because often, and I've seen this in my own career, a promotion is just given to somebody without realizing like, oh, that job was even open, right? That option was mm-hmm. possible. I didn't know. And I also didn't know what was required for that position. So it's then also making sure that employees have also access to development opportunities and they're actually done equally. Because I know from my own experience, I did have an opportunity to work with a major donor on my first real job. And that was huge to understand the fundraising that happens in an organization, but also the, all the prep work that goes into pitching that donor, then also what you provide to that donor when you check in with them regularly. And that kind of access to understanding also the fundraising side becomes more and more important, especially as you move up in NGOs especially. Right. But if you don't have access to that kind of an opportunity, you're not able to build a skill yeah. Right To truly be a talented fundraiser when you know that that is actually potentially one of the steps to promotion. So thinking about, do you actually give access to all of your staff to those kind of opportunities? And then the last couple of things are diversity committees. And I'll say this with a caveat that it's important to think about both who's on those committees, what kind of power they hold, what kind of budgetary authority they hold, um, and how much they can actually both implement and actually make action happen rather than just convening all the junior staff to talk about this, right? Mm-hmm. And so you need key senior leadership, no matter what, on those kinds of things. And then also setting goals. Like, do you actually have goals and metrics as an institution around how you're continuing to progress on? diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice? like Have you actually both pulled apart all of those things, but Mm -hmm. also created good benchmarks and measures that not only get embedded across the organization sort of in strategic plan form, but down to the granular level of individual performance?
0: Oh, those are really good suggestions. I especially like the one of who makes up the diversity committee. It can't be just a bunch of quote-unquote diverse people (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then people who are like in a certain tier, Mm -hmm. then that becomes problematic. And what I've seen is that the change for towards diversity, equity, and inclusion usually has to come from the leadership level. It's difficult when it's
1: from a grassroots level, essentially. That's right. And our report also addressed, like, key CEO actions because we realized that that piece is critically important. So, like, CEO needs to include it in strategic plan, needs to include it in mission, vision, values of the organization. Yes. And also be held accountable. So, there's an organization called the Green Leadership Trust, Yeah, which is the board members of color and indigenous people who sit on the The boards of a lot of these major organizations and they put together a CEO evaluation tool. And so that's one way for also CEOs to be held accountable and knowing there need to be permutations for every organization. Right. But is a CEO actually held accountable for that? Or is this like, oh, that's the nice thing that you do in addition to all your other things? Or is it just as important as the programmatic and fundraising and everything else? Because it needs to be on par.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we did interview the current director for Green Leadership. Trust Dr. Pako. i be this. Yeah. <laughs> it was really eye opening to have a conversation with him around some of the experiences that board members, Indigenous people of color board members typically face. And just the support system that the leadership trust creates. I was mm-hmm. almost crying. I'm like, this is beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, like we really need this. And just because you've moved at a higher level of leadership or authority or power, or whatever you're still vulnerable, especially if you're just one person of color in a board that's dominated by one culture or one type of people. So yeah, that's a really great initiative. There's one thing that you mentioned earlier on is that the first report that was written by Dr. Dorsita Taylor, you said that you wanted to identify what is the baseline data on the demographics. What did you find in terms of representation? And you also mentioned that there's been an improvement
1: Mm.
0: or that you were seeing an upward improvement. So what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So first off, Dr. Taylor's report really scanned sort of the the full scope and scale of like the environmental movement and almost over 2,000 organizations in total. So Mm. hers was pretty comprehensive. Right. And what she found was basically on average, there was between 12 and 16% people of color in environmental organizations. And when I say that, I mean also NGOs, foundations, and government, right? Yeah. And so at the time, if you think back to 2014, people of color were about 35% of the population. So if you looked at, at the upper end, 16% were in environmental NGOs, foundations, and government, but we were 35% of the population, right? So mm. that disparity is pretty stark. Yeah. Then when it comes to the trends we're seeing, that is mostly focused on sort of the top 40 NGOs and foundations. And we started collecting their data from 2017 through till now. And that's the place where we're starting to see trends mm-hmm. upwards, which is great. Yeah. And I think overall, we'll probably do another more comprehensive look. And I'm sure Dr. Taylor at some point will do a more comprehensive look at the full 2000 to see hopefully a trend in the positive direction, hopefully as well there too. But those, I mean, the hope is that we can begin to actually match the U.S. population, knowing that the U.S. population is moving as if not exponentially now. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge is the environmental movement not only needs to Meet where we are right now, but actually exceed it if it wants to keep pace. Yeah, and so that's the place where I think the most attention is needed is actually accelerating. Yeah, this going forward. Yeah,
0: and was the twelve to sixteen percent, if I remember correctly, most of them were in lower level positions, administrative, and even a smaller percentage were in positions of leadership. I
1: can't remember. Yeah, so when you looked at the trajectory across from like. Internship to full time staff to senior leaders to board, you basically went from sort of internship level was often up to almost 22, 23%. But when you got to the board level of people of color, you were down to 4%. And so you watched as you slowly went up in leadership yeah. that the numbers just continued to go down. Yeah. And that's the place where we really need to grow, which is like we get people who care about this and are interested in this field in their early career. But by mid-career, they're off for doing something else potentially, and that's the place where we yeah. need to really focus. Yeah. So, how
0: did mainstream environmental groups become so white?
1: Well, part you have to look at history, right? And like, who has access to power? Who has access to money? Who had access to think about these things to be able to build an entire organization around them? Right. Mm. So. One, you got to go back to, you know, like manifest destiny and colonization of America, which is like where this actually started, right? Which is the native peoples and the indigenous people who used to live across the entire country slowly got pushed into smaller and smaller spaces and now reservations. And so, like, that was the beginning of this. But it continued through the Mexican American War and pushing Mexicans off. Of America's land as well. All the way through to Teddy Roosevelt and sort of the beginning of what we think about, at least in the modern era, the sort of modern conservation movement, mm-hmm. was largely led by white men, but white men who often had really problematic pasts and opinions about people of color that now would be seen as antithetical to a lot of the things we care about. But then, were not seen in, in that same way, but they were very white supremacist in that way, very racist. Even when you look back to those moments, recognizing that the first journey through Yellowstone, the person who was the cook for Teddy Roosevelt, white was a, an Asian yes. man. And it's like, where did his story go? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who helped to make that invisible, right? Yeah. And then we continue to make those things less and less visible going forward. Yeah. And so that's sort of the beginning of it. But then when you think of the more modern era of the 1950s, 60s, the beginning of especially the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, etc., was white middle to upper middle class folks who said, oh, we need a whole infrastructure and legal regulation around this, and we can create a bunch of organizations that can then advocate for these things. Without recognizing that often people of color who are leading what we now describe as more the environmental justice movement been there advocating, right, for the local power plant to be closed down or their local waterway to actually be clean. Those voices got subsumed in the sort of just moving on. So it's in part all of that history that contributes to both where we are now, but it's also not unique to the environmental movement, right? It's also in Hollywood. There's so many other parts of American society that are replicating that exact same trajectory. Right. So it's not surprising per se, but it's a question of what are we doing to actually start to dismantle those structures because they're continuing to oppress.
0: Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention when you mentioned that Teddy Roosevelt's the chef was an Asian man, we actually learned about it with one of our podcast guests, Jack Hsu, who does uh, pilgrimages. Following the path of Tai Chin, who's the the chef. And they actually oh. try to replicate some of his dishes during the pilgrimage.
1: Oh. Wonderful. <laughs> Very wonderful. cool. Yeah.
0: Gosh, all the things that I'm learning through these conversations of just erased histories is, I don't know. I feel like I thought I knew some things, but now I just know nothing <laughs> <laughs> from all these conversations. And it's so humbling but exciting at the same time. And but it's also like the levels and levels of just all kinds of emotions. But to your point of this white supremacist kind of having this pervasive impact in different sectors of our economy, of our community, I guess I see that more so now and I understand that. But when I became an environmentalist, I came from a perspective of environmental and social justice. And so I didn't expect that the environmental movement would reflect that kind of history as well. Mm -hmm. Because the way I saw the environmental movement is we started up like fighting for human livelihoods and natural systems. And we were against the government. We were against these systemic structures of oppression. It was in the messaging maybe, but it wasn't in the action. I was surprised when I had a rude awakening and I'm like, oh, it's not what I thought it was. And I'm seeing more of what I believe in the environmental justice movement. But one of the things that we're struggling with we've talked about is we've had these green groups that have been white for the most part, and they've made impacts, they've collaborated with policymakers, they've enacted policies, like they've made some sort of good impact, right? So what is the incentive to diversify?
1: One is simply relevance, yeah. right? Like you might be relevant now, but come 2042, are you still going to be that way? And I think we're seeing more acute concerns around relevancy, especially for like hunting and angling groups right now, in a maybe different way more though than the mainstream. But you're seeing it happen because in part of the demographics of the country, right? Mm -hmm. But also like, who are you speaking to? Who are you engaging? Who's going to care about these things? And who's going to keep advocating for environmental issues? And people of color will keep doing it, right? Like, don't get me wrong. (laughs) We will build it if we have to, right? Yes. But... It's also a loss of the power, right? Which is like, if you only have so many people who care about this and are willing to advocate for it with you, in collaboration with you, you're missing out on a huge part of the population that might be with you too. right? And that's the thing is like, as Mustafa Ali always says, this is power building. We should be power building because we are actually not winning. And this is the other thing, like you can say we're doing well, but are we really? We have climate change. We barely come up with a solution for, let alone fixed. True. (laughs) Like, we still don't have people who recycle. Like, there's still real basic things. Yeah. We don't have clean drinking water, as Flint, Michigan is a prime example. Like, so are we winning? And I think we need to actually upend the notion like, are we actually doing this well? Probably not as well as we actually could if we had everybody at the table, because we actually would have drinking water that everyone could actually drink. And be healthy from, mm-hmm. right? And not worry about whether it's going to contaminate or kill them. We would be able to solve issues around climate change in a comprehensive and thoughtful way, because everybody at the table to think about what are the impacts to communities. I especially think about like Louisiana's like lower ninth ward. I think about communities in Alaska who you're watching the sea level rise, but also the erosion of permafrost. Like this is directly impacting some communities who often don't have seats of power, yeah. which means we're actually not solving for them, which means we're not solving the problem. Yeah. And so I'd actually upend the fact, like, are we actually winning? I don't know. Your lawyer side totally came out. <laughs> I don't think we're winning, right? And this is why, like, we got to make better arguments. It yeah. means we actually got to make better arguments for all of the people. Sorry, I got to process that.
0: That was really good. <laughs> so... We're trying to advocate for diversity, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the mainstream environmental movements. And we want to have those conversations with those individuals who are in positions of leadership, who make the decisions on, okay, we're going to do this. Or even an organization that didn't really think about it and has been comfortable How do you go in and have these conversations of you might want to consider creating a diverse and an inclusive work environment?
1: So I feel like this was year one, two, three and four of Green 2.0. I feel like we've passed that point, which is good. But making the business case for like why this matters, I think has been made. And if folks still don't see it, we, we got a few holdouts right, on the, at least the data side of things, it's often both a moral question, right, which is like, does this actually matter to you? Is this a value? Or is it just like, oh, that's that extra thing I have to do? And depending on the orientation of the leader will often decide how much of an importance this gets, if at all. Mm -hmm. And so I've watched when organizations truly understand that like this will actually help them achieve their mission, which is what it's about, right? You still as an environmental organization need to achieve your mission. The way you do that best is actually through diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Yeah, Making that case is one that honestly, like the literature has done for years. You know, I think of reports by McKinsey and others that have articulated like the benefits, especially the more for-profit companies, but the same holds true, of the benefits of having a diversity in your workforce on outcomes, solutions, innovation, you know, the whole nine yards.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: That case is easy to me. Usually, though, that's not the sticking point. It's usually something about how a leader is thinking or is oriented that makes this either a scary thing for them to do or is worried about their own power or control. Or it's usually something else. It's not always like the quote-unquote diversity. It's usually something else that is a sticking point that you actually have to understand first to know how to approach it. But honestly, that's probably more the thing than whether or not I can make the case. Because I can make the case all day. And I should just be able to hand you a report that says like, here's all the reasons why you should do this. Right. It's usually not that in and of itself.
0: That's interesting. Could you expound a little bit more on what are the underlying reasons you mentioned there's a fear of loss of power? How would that come about as a result of diversifying?
1: So often people, and this goes to the problem of dichotomies, right? When there's actually gray or there is no dichotomy, Mm -hmm. right? It's often the challenge when people think, if I get something, you lose. Rather than thinking about, oh, if I get something, but I actually give it to you, we both win. Mm -hmm. And so often it's just the framing around scarcity that often frames more of these discussions than not. which is like, if I give you power, if I give you access, if I give you something... I assume I will lose something. And that scarcity mentality pervades nonprofits in general, right, around like funding and other things, let alone their workforce. And so that in part, I think, is one of the underlying things that happens. And two is leaders who've reached that level of senior C-suite, whatever that is, did so because they often did whatever people told them to do before, right? And feel like people need to go through that same process without realizing that like that process was actually not helpful for anyone and might not actually be the vision for the future. So how are you designing for the future rather than designing for your past? But it means a level of relaxation. Often people have to come with like recognizing my past might not be my future and maybe shouldn't be anyone else's either. Yeah. But it also means like, oh, I've got to then make it up as I go, which can I think be very scary for people. Even though that's actually not the case, other people have models for this, but you need to expand your own purview to realize that your model might not be the right one.
0: Right. And it goes back to what you were saying is is this relevant for, given the circumstances of our current times, you either sink or you swim. So choose a side or make a decision? I don't know. Going back to the forty or so environmental organizations that you referred to, you're saying that there's increase in diversity. What are they doing right? What are three intentional strategies that are making them successful and diversifying?
1: So I think there are a couple, but one is really organizational institutional commitment and resources allocated to doing true equity and justice work. So not just like, Oh yeah, we want to do that. Let's throw a committee together and give them nothing to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but rather Really providing, whether that's consultants' expertise to really help an organization on its journey. That's one, which is like sometimes you just need outside experts for this. This is like when you hire your lobbying consultant, this is the same thing. So, who do you need to help you actually on the organizational journey? Two, do you truly have leadership buy in? And I don't mean just leadership who says, yes, go do that, but leadership who's actually bought into doing the work themselves and realizing they need to learn just as much as the rest of the organization needs to learn. And also recognizing when they're going to do really well, but also when they're going to make mistakes and owning them. And having leadership who can really both own that and recognize the humility of an organization and be humble in those moments, really important. And then also being ready to make really hard decisions. So you might get to a place where organizations, you realize that you're committed to this diversity, inclusion, and justice work. You're going to do it. And there are some people who are not on board Mm -hmm. or not willing to support the organization. And this can come from everywhere from a board level on down. What decisions are you actually going to make in those moments? And the organizations that are willing to bump up against, especially board members and donors, and make this like, this still matters to us, and we're willing to do this. I've seen it more so the bumping up against discomfort actually in other fields other than the environmental one, which has been quite lovely. But I think it's one of the places where people are starting to push into, and I'm starting to see especially changes in compositions of boards that are really encouraging more in depth discussions on equity and justice, especially given Green Leadership Trust's work and others that's really forcing. Those folks have some hard conversations around like, do I need to stay on this board? And do I need to get off given where they're going before they have that hard of conversation with me, right? And then what am I committing to? And how am I going to support the organization and what needs to happen? I think the other thing is there's so much groundwork and education and learning that is an organization also committed to that longer learning journey, not just like a training or a thing, but really committing to how do we simply re-educate our staff, around gender, around race, around inequality? Like, are you actually willing to commit to a three, four, five-year process, not just a, we did that for everybody and we're good?
0: Right. I think that's the thing is, I've been doing a lot of research around diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops and how companies are implementing them within their organizational frameworks. And it's usually just this It'll be maybe an online course that's mandatory that people take reluctantly or it'll be a workshop that people will again take reluctantly and maybe it'll be like once in two years. But that's not how you bring about behavior change or change in perception because these are biases and stereotypes that we all have that we even don't know that we have and that they're a product of our upbringing, of our environment. So how can we undo years of that kind of molding, it's kind of unrealistic.
1: And that's why the organizations are truly committing to that, but also creating clear performance competencies. So not just saying like, oh, we have that training, but also how are you building that competency within every member of your staff and how are they held accountable mm-hmm. to actually learning and growing? Is it just as important as the what you're actually doing on a day-to-day level? Because those two things come in tandem.
0: So. In terms of the increasing the diversity in the, I can't remember which report it was, if it was the first one that Dr. Taylor put out, but there was a mention that there's been success in promoting women within these green groups. Mm -hmm. And most of these promotions are for white women. So that made me think, okay, so now white women are taking over the roles, responsibilities that white men had in an institution that is trying to Depending on where they are within their state of evolution, what role now do white women play in this effort to promote diversity, equity and inclusion within the environmental organizations?
1: Yeah, this brings up so many complex issues around like feminism, Mm -hmm. right, too, and the focus on white feminism, especially over the course of women's rights in general. If you go back to Belmont Paul and the women's rights movement early on, it it was all white women. And I think this is a moment in time where there also needs to be a reckoning around that that's really going to help hopefully the whole shift. But there's clearly a role here for both white men and white women to make this shift. To really both understand and explore what whiteness means and its role in the continued oppression of people, and especially people of color, and how do you actually dismantle those in your organization? And how, especially as white women, are you perpetually perpetuating the patriarchy unknowingly, right? And perpetuating the white supremacy that often has been claimed to like, no, we don't want that. But in reality, we often still lean into those. And you can just watch election cycles for so much of this, which is like when it comes down to brass tacks, what choice do you make? And what are you willing to really take to heart and use as a value? to actually drive your decisions that actually uplift other people and liberate other people. Like, what does that actually mean? And what does that actually look like? And so I think there's an incredible role for white women if they recognize their role in the continued oppression Mm -hmm. of people of color and especially women of color. But that's going to be an evolution. Like, I have the incredible privilege of having my mother-in-law who's a white woman. She, I don't think, ever thought about many of these things before a meeting, <laughs> getting to know me. But <laughs> yeah. she and I now have conversations around like race and gender and its impact in a way that I hope most people can have those conversations. Now, if you'd asked me 20 years ago when i have a conversation with my mother-in-law about race, <laughs> I'd probably <laughs> been like, no, I doubt it. But those are the kind of conversations we need to have, not only with our colleagues, but also with family and others to be like, this is what happens to me every day. Yeah. And for her, it was like, what that happens to you every day? Like, yes, most days, maybe not every day, but it's darn close. And then her actually experiencing some of those with me when she just would look at me like, did that really just happen? It's like, yes, that happens all the time. And you're not exaggerating. (laughs) But for people to recognize, like, how are they contributing to that? Or not shifting that when it happens, when you're just standing to watching it, versus like, what is my role not only as an ally, but an accomplice and fully onto co conspiratorship, Mm -hmm. right? What does that look like? Yeah. How do you do it so that you don't continue the oppression that has happened for generations?
0: Yeah. You're so right. It's will you show up for me and will you break that cycle and kind of recognize that? you have your own privilege to reckon with, right? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating because the story is evolving. And I feel like the target's always moving. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Just stay in one place, we'll figure it out together. But it made me think, because yes, now we're seeing a lot more women in the environmental space. And it just made me wonder, how do they bring themselves to the space? How do their experiences impact a decision that they're making for somebody else's livelihood who they may not be aware of. Mm -hmm. In a way, it's also repeating itself. It's like history is repeating itself. I have hope that because of the history of white women also fighting for their own rights, that there's at least some window there of understanding.
1: Yeah, I think just thinking about the COVID right now and the coronavirus and watching the countries who are actually led by white women are doing some incredible work right now, yeah. which is quite fascinating, and it just is a, both a level of curiosity for me, but also enormous opportunity. Which is, who's leading? Yeah, right? how are they leading, and how is that seen as a potential both enormous opportunity, both growth, support, and well-being mm-hmm. for all the members of each of their countries in a fundamentally different way than might have happened. Yeah. In some other leadership.
0: Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised to see that New Zealand doesn't have any new cases, has had, had mm-hmm. no cases in the past five days, I believe. And mm-hmm. the Prime Minister is a woman. Mm-hmm. She's a badass, if I can say <laughs> that on my own podcast. Really? She's a
2: badass. <laughs> <I know.
0: laughs> So my final question here to you is, for a person, Black, Indigenous, person of color, is it really worth the emotional capital to try and break through the green ceiling, given what we know from these reports, that there is some improvement that's being made, but there's still a long way to go?
1: So I obviously can't make that decision for you. I would argue yes. You got to be ready for that emotional labor that's going to happen. But there are a lot of organizations that are willing to share that with you in a way that I don't think was true five, six years ago. And I think it will continue to increase. Yes. So that's the upside. Two is everybody's got to make their own decision. I can never say what's going to work for anyone else and don't know what their limit is. But know that that there is an enormous network of people of color who are going to continue to rally and be support networks for folks. Got a text from a equity director earlier today and often will call me when she can get to a sticking point or a challenge or something that's not working or just like, I need to talk to you, mm-hmm. fine. And so I think that network is continuing to expand and deepen in a way that I think will help support us. But also we're starting to find some really incredible white co-conspirators who are willing to also put themselves on the line here that is going to make all the difference in the world. So I'm feeling positive. Well, we'll go by
0: that. I'm feeling positive too. (laughs) And just speaking to your point through my research, I've seen diversity officers, for example, at Sierra Club and NWF. And when I started working like 12 years ago, we didn't have that. And I worked in some major environmental institutions. So there's something happening for good, for sure. So we're getting into the part of our conversation. Well, it's not a conversation. It's just me just (laughs) spitting out (laughs) questions to you and you just tell me what comes to your mind first, which is the lightning round. So The first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? And maybe it doesn't have to be lately. It could be in your lifetime.
1: (laughs) So this is a total closet love of mine, but I love espionage. And I feel that understanding the nuances of often politics and people is both fascinating, but helps me enormously in my job. And so I think... In subtle ways, that whole body of work that I've loved reading for years has taught me a lot. Yeah. There's a stack sitting on my bookshelf that's a lot of other things, but those are the things I most enjoy.
0: Okay. <laughs> What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your
1: work? I think definitely ballet, bar none, it is the one thing that will cause me enormous levels of relaxation mm-hmm. and calm. And even now in COVID, when I only can use like my chair. <laughs> to take a class but it is definitely the one thing yeah. that will get me through most anything i think that's so cool that you're
0: a professional ballerina it's just super cool are there any youtube videos out there of you performing
1: god i hope not <laughs> this was before youtube so i'm really hoping <laughs> we can not find anything there's some like
0: videotapes out there huh
1: <laughs> yeah i feel be like beta you know like it'd, it'd be so old school at this point like
0: I really love watching ballerina movies or documentaries. It's
1: just a fascinating culture. Anyways, I'm rambling now, but... (laughs) No, it's actually a surprise in different ways, but surprisingly similar to the environmental movement in odd ways, only because of the culture for perfectionism and even white supremacy, right? Which is like... Dancers have to look and feel and seem and be a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's ubiquitous in ballet in a way that is even sometimes more grueling than in the environmental movement.
0: Oh, I would have never made that connection. Thank you for sharing yeah. that.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that like as a ballerina, you're expected to look and be a certain way. And that means every part of your body, right? Even the things that like most people don't pay any attention to. <laughs> like all of those things. Yeah. And if you don't do things that other people do, or you have a talent that is unusual in comparison to other people in your gender, or something else. Like ballet doesn't know what to do with you, or doesn't quite know like what box you fit in, and it's really hard. And right now, ballet is going through an interesting moment of potential gender-bending moments, but it is Mm -hmm. taking the ballet world in a way that is fundamentally different than I think a lot of other art forms or let alone other movements. What is a gender-bending? We've always had like gender-bending things in ballet, but it's often been like the whole production is all men for Swan Lake. But it hasn't been like there's just one person who is like that doesn't compute in the ballet world. It's either like, everybody's in their normal roles and men are men and women are women. Uh Or you do like farce on it and do it in gender bending roles, but it's not like you can just have one in a normal role and have the other be the opposite. Like it's all of a sudden like ballet doesn't know what to do. We're getting a little bit better around that, especially like newer choreographers are definitely being more innovative around that. But classical ballet still don't quite know what to do. It's either like you go the normal classic route or you're the bending one But the stuff in the middle is still really hard and really it's a groundbreaking right now.
0: Yeah. Could be like experimental dancing. Yeah.
1: There's finally a a member of the, I think Royal Ballet who is transgender, wants to be on point. And the company was like, Are you gonna be able to handle that or no?
0: Oh. (laughs) What does that have to do with okay.
1: Anyways, that's all the the things. I'm with you. But it's like that's where ballet is, right? And that's where ballet has been since like Louis the Fourteenth, like yeah. And it's one of the places where I think it's going to have the hardest time in the shift in moments yeah. that are classical ballet. I think contemporary ballet can handle it, modern ballet can handle it, but classical mm. going to be hard. They're going to have to find a way to stay relevant. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, they are.
0: All right. So the next question here is: We should have just like talked about the relationship between ballet and environmentalism. That would have been awesome. (laughs) We have to do a second interview. (laughs) What's the best piece of advice you've received? I think the best piece of advice I've ever received
1: is be true to yourself.
0: It seems so simple, but it's, you just have to remind yourself of that in critical moments where your character may come in, may be questioned or navigating through new spaces that you're not familiar
1: with. Or even ones that you've been familiar with for a long time. Yes. But realize you got to push up against something.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. If I could ask a follow-up question to that, how do you stay true to yourself if you're being made to do something that is not in alignment with your values?
1: Then I think you got to make a good call. Do you keep doing it or do you not? And those are sometimes the hardest decisions, right? When it's like you say, like, yes, I want to keep doing this, but maybe not this way or maybe not with you or whatever that's going to be. Mm-hmm. I've had a couple of those in my life where it's been like, okay, I'm going to either power through this because it just needs to get done, or I'm going to make a call that like I'm going to be honest about how uncomfortable this is and see how it lands. I've done both, but it's like, how do you do that and still reconcile with yourself, whatever it is you're going to do?
0: Yeah. I think for me, at least, I've I've realized that when I was in crossroads like that, I think I would beat myself a little bit too much as to like, why can't you just stand your ground and make a decision? But it's a lot more harder than that because there's so many other factors at play. If, for example, that's, it'll be hard to find a job, it's far more complicated. So be nice to yourself.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that Especially for a woman of color in those moments, mm-hmm. we have the compounding right, intersections and the competing narratives that we've been told over the course of our lives, right? And so reconciling all that can be really hard. And I don't ever say that's easy because it's not. But do you also have enough of a support network and people around you who can help you do that in a way that makes you feel comfortable?
0: Yes. Yeah. The support network is just critical. It's mm-hmm. very important. Final
1: question, what is your superpower? (laughs) Most people who know me know this. It's staying calm in almost any situation, no matter what happens or how south it goes or how bad it goes. I can remain very calm, both in the voice and my tenor, but also in my response. That is
0: a superpower indeed. (laughs) All right. So how can we follow you on your
1: journey? One is just following Green 2.0, which is both you can check out our website at diversegreen.org, but also our Twitter and Facebook and our Twitter handle is Diverse Green. Keep sending us messages, keep tracking what we're doing, keep pushing us just like everything else. And then I'm also on Twitter at WJ Tome and we'll see you on the flip side, All wherever right. that might be. All
0: right. Is there anything else you want to add
1: before we end our conversation? First off, I to thank you. Thank you for the incredible work you're doing and the commitment you're making to this journey. So thank you for that. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Appreciate that. really do. I'm just surprised
1: by, and
0: I know I've said this before, I think, or maybe I've thought it many times, but I'm just really surprised by how supportive people have been for this effort. I'm not taking it for granted. (laughs) I have not. Got on any no's so far so maybe I'm just convincing people or what I don't know but I'm really humbled that people like you are willing to come on and just be vulnerable and talk about your experiences and just be true to yourself while you're doing that it's not easy for sure
1: keep asking whoever you want to ask I'm going to tell you like <laughs> you asked me I said yes right and knowing that a yeah. lot more people will probably do the same so don't be shy about asking yeah Yes, yes, for sure. Your first no might actually be that you're doing something right. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) it could be. So, yeah, well, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. I wish you well and I'll
1: be in touch. Thank you, Sepna, so much. And good luck with the next series or however many you end up doing. I'm looking forward to them.
0: Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our changemakers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.